Well, as I said yesterday, the most important thing to take away from the mission is to remember the love the Sacred Heart has for us. How much our Lord loves us. He's become man to save us. He's aware of what we go through, that nothing surprises him. He wants to give us whatever grace is necessary for us to become saints in the particular circumstances we find our lives. That would be the most important thing to take away from that. Tonight I'd say the second most important thing to take away from is what I'm going to say now. St. Philip Neri uh, was teaching a group of little kids, you know, four or five, five-year-olds, their catechism. When he was done, he asked the children, you know, all right, children, is it easy to go to hell? And uh, children of that age, of course, say what they think, which is often embarrassing to us, but they go, oh, yeah, yes, Father, it's very easy to go to hell. He says, yes, that's right. But you must also remember that it's very, very easy to go to heaven. Do you want to know an easy way to go to heaven? And they go, oh, yes, Father. And he says, say your three Hail Marys. If you say your three Hail Marys every day, you can be sure you will go to heaven. Three Hail Marys, the devotion was revealed to St. Matilda by Our Lady. St. Matilda was very concerned this in the 13th century about her own salvation. And Our, Our Lady appeared to her and asked her to say the three Hail Marys. And uh, St. Matilda said that Our Lady told her that wisdom, power, and love of God would be available to her at the hour of death if she was faithful to that practice. And then Our Lady appeared to St. Gertrude, who was a, a disciple of St. Matilda, and said, To any soul who faithfully pra- prays the three Hail Marys, I will appear at the hour of death in a splendor of beauty so extraordinary that will fill the soul with heavenly consolation. Now, how hard is that? I've timed it. It takes about 40 seconds. So we're not talking about a large investment of time. Our Lady will love us. Just to make that point more clear, I'll read you something. Uh, St. Alphonsus records this. It's actually St. Alphonsus took it, as he points out, from the Revelations of St. Bridget. In the Revelations of St. Bridget, we read that there was a rich man, as noble by birth as he was vile and sinful in his habits. He had given himself by an express compact as a slave to the devil. So he'd sold his soul to the devil for power. He'd given himself by an express compact as a slave to the devil, and for 60 successive years had served him, leading such a life as may be imagined, and never approached the sacraments. Now this prince was dying, and Jesus Christ, to show him mercy, commanded St. Bridget to tell her confessor to go and visit him and exhort him to confess his sins. The confessor went, and the sick man said he did not require confession, as he had often approached the sacrament of penance. What a lie. The priest went a second time, but his poor slave of hell persevered in his obstinate determination not to confess. Jesus again told the saint to desire the confessor to return. He did so, and on the third occasion told the sick man the revelation made to the saint, and that he had returned so many times because our Lord, who wished to show him mercy, had so ordered. On hearing this, the dying man was touched and began to weep. But how, he exclaimed, can I be saved? I, who for 60 years have served the devil as his slave and have my soul burdened with innumerable sins. My son, answered the father, encouraging him, doubt not. If you repent of them on the part of God, I promise you pardon. Then gaining confidence, he said to the confessor, Father, I looked upon myself as lost in our despair of salvation. But now I feel sorrow for my sins, which gives me confidence. And since God has not yet abandoned me, I will make my confession. 
In fact, he made his confession four times on that day. You'd imagine after six years uh, living uh, bound to the devil, what kind of confessions those would be. So he's probably remembering things, you know, six years of terrible sin. He made this confession four times that day with the greatest marks of sorrow, and on the following morning received Holy Communion. On the sixth day, contrite and resigned, he died. After his death, Jesus Christ again spoke to St. Bridget and told her that the sinner was saved, that he was in a purgatory, and that he owed his salvation to the intercession of the Blessed Virgin, his mother. For the deceased, although he had led so wicked a life, had nevertheless always preserved devotion to her sorrows, and whenever he thought of him, pitied her. See, God is looking for an excuse to save us. He's looking for excuses to save us. That's why he became man. That's why he died on the cross. That's why he's sitting there quietly in the tabernacle behind me right now. That's why he gave his mother to be our mother, because he wants to save us. We have to have a true devotion to Mary. We can be sure if we have a true devotion to Mary, she'll lead us to her son. We want to live the message of Fatima. Say a rosary every day. Wear a brown scapular. Quit sinning. So in the mission, I'd place first place, we have to have a devotion to the Sacred Heart. Second place, devotion to the Immaculate Heart. Those, I think, are the two most important points. That being said, uh, after yesterday, there's probably people that are going, Oh, come on, Padre, where do you get this stuff? I'm not gonna, don't worry, I'm not going to go through a whole bunch of statistics on you again. Where do you get this stuff? What makes you think things are going to get worse? Relax, have a cold one, etc. That's the kind of things that people will tell me. So I've got a neat little book here. This was written in 1935, just a few years ago. 1935, Franciscan Herald Press, by the Reverend F.J. Remler, C.M. So he's of Incension, I think, if I remember right, the C.M. I hope I'm right. And it's called Why Must I Suffer? It's back in print. It's a fantastic book. I can't recommend it highly enough. On why must I suffer? But I'm going to read you from chapter 2 on why we must suffer. The second reason why you must suffer, especially in times of general calamity, is this. As a member of society and a citizen of your country, you must unite with the rest in making the atonement and reparation which divine justice requires for the public and national sins committed in the community in which you live. By public and national sins, we understand certain sins of a graver nature, which are committed on so large a scale, and by so many persons in a community, be it a city or a province, or an entire nation, that they are attributed to the community as a body, and not merely to this or that individual. Sins of this kind are... This list was written in 1935. Here's the list of public and national sins. Apostasy from the faith. Irreligion. Forgetfulness of God. Godless education of the young. Profanation of God's holy name. Cursing. Blasphemy. Perjury. What do you mean by is? The desecration of the Lord's day. Immodest and scandalous fashions. Immoral art. Immoral literature. Immoral amusements. 
divorce and adultery sanctioned by iniquitous state laws, dishonesty, injustice, and oppression of the poor, murder and race suicide, and finally those wild orgies of gross immorality and unstrained license which periodically disgrace public festivities and celebrations or occur in connection with balls, dancings, banquets, and the like. And in 1935, they didn't have rock and roll concerts, etc. God is exceedingly patient and long-suffering and does not willingly inflict general chastisements, however richly they may be deserved by a community. He rather desires that his offending children seek his pardon by means of a timely repentance and conversion. He waited a hundred years before he sent the deluge, which he had commissioned Noah to announce. He allowed 40 years to lapse between the prediction made by our Lord of the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the fulfillment of that prediction by the Romans in the year 70. He spared the city of Nineveh altogether because its inhabitants immediately left off sinning and hastened to do penance at the preaching of Jonas. God acts in this way still. He often waits a long time before he afflicts on sinful cities and nations those more extensive chastisements which their multiplied iniquities call for. He desires to spare them and therefore tries first in every possible way to recall them to a sense of their duty into timely repentance and conversion, say perhaps by sending the Holy Father over, Mother Teresa to talk to the National Prayer Breakfast, etc., But if in spite of these delays, they obstinately refuse to enter into themselves and leave off sinning. If they continue in their wickedness, sometimes even to the extent of sinning more boldly because their evil deeds are not punished at once, then the hour must come in which the measure of the iniquity is filled to overflowing. That hour will mark the beginning of some general visitation which will fall heavily on the guilty community as a just punishment of its long-continued transgressions of God's holy law. Destructive floods or storms, conflagrations, earthquakes, seasons of scarcity and famine, epidemics and pestilences, and especially the horrors of rebellions and revolutions and of civil and international wars. Divine justice makes use of these evils for the punishment and correction of a sinful people, much the same as a wise father uses the rod for the chastisement and betterment of a wayward child. Nor is it always necessary that God send such chastisement for public sins as he sent the deluge or the destruction of Jerusalem. There are many sins which contain in themselves the seeds of future public suffering, just as an acorn contains a gigantic oak. If such sins prevail for a sufficiently long time, unchecked and unrepented, they are bound to produce such conditions in the social order as make certain calamities unavoidable. Take, for example, the sin of godless education, that is, education of the youth without religion. Where such a system has been adopted, the necessary results must be the following. After two or three generations, the knowledge of God will disappear more or less completely among the people. The sense of right and wrong will be lost. Good will be called evil, and evil good. There will be no respect for the moral law. The depravity of youth will grow worse and worse. Dishonesty and corruption will prevail in business, in the courts, 
in the legislature, and in the government itself. Taxes will be misappropriated or disappear in the pockets of grafters. Heavy expenses will be necessary to maintain the growing number of asylums, juvenile courts, reform schools, and prisons. There will be no security to honor property and life. The relations between capital and labor will be strained to the breaking point. Violence and bloodshed will become inevitable. Family life will be disrupted by adultery, divorce, and free love. National rivalries, jealousies, and hatreds provoked by commercial greed grow more and more intense until they lead to international wars with an unspeakable misery to millions. Nations that sow the whirlwind must reap the storm. It's written in 1935. Public and national sins must be expiated in this world for the very simple reason that they cannot be expiated in the next. In the world to come, families, cities, provinces, and nations will have no continued corporate existence. Their men and women will exist merely as individuals without being united by those social, civil, political, and national bonds which are necessary in this life for the welfare and preservation of the human race. In eternity, they will individually enjoy the fruits of their life on earth. The good will possess the kingdom of God in heaven, while the wicked shall suffer for their evil deeds in the unquenchable fire of hell. But as public sins require public expiation, and as this expiation cannot be made in this next life, it is clear that it must be made on this side of the grave. A question which proves a sore temptation to many persons whose faith is weak and unenlightened suggests itself in this connection. Why is it that the good and virtuous are not exempt at such times, but are compelled to suffer like the rest? If God is just, how can he allow the innocent to be afflicted with the guilty? There are several reasons why God permits the good to suffer in times of public chastisements. One, it is but right and just that the good should lend a willing hand to offering to God the atonement made necessary by public sins, because in normal times they enjoy in common with their fellow citizens the blessings of peace, tranquility, national prosperity. Their temporal interests are common, both in times of prosperity and in times of affliction. Two, those who are innocent of actually taking part in public sins are not, for that reason, always wholly free from guilt in the sight of God. Very often they are guilty of these sins in an indirect manner, accessory to them as it is called. Thus they may have connived at some form of immorality. They may not have protested against it. They may have neglected to use their authority or influence or right to vote to hinder its introduction or to procure its removal when already introduced, in all this from indifference human respect, fear of persecution, of loss of business, and similar unworthy reasons. Three, the sufferings endured by the good have a much greater atoning value than those endured by the wicked. Hence, the more good persons there are to join in in making the required atonement, the more quickly will it be made. Besides, God is easily moved out of consideration for the sufferings of the good, greatly to mitigate his punishments, and sometimes even to cancel them altogether. Four, the sight of the good suffering for sins which they did not commit is apt to promote the conversion and salvation of the wicked by vividly reminding them of the more rigorous chastisements inflicted for sin in the next life. If sin is punished so severely upon the good here upon earth, how much more severely will it be punished upon unrepentant sinners in eternity? 5. Such sufferings afford the good an opportunity of making full atonement for their personal sins. For there is no one so holy and so confirmed in grace that he has not committed some sins, such at least... As are venial. Even the just man shall fall seven times, as the scripture has it, that is, frequently. But it is an unchanging law that every sin, even the smallest, 
must be fully expiated either here or hereafter in purgatory. But expiation made here is vastly more profitable than that which is made after death. Six, the patient endurance of undured suffering makes the good resemble Jesus Christ, who, though perfectly innocent, took upon himself the task of making atonement for our sins and thereby opening heaven to us. If he had not made this atonement, we could not be saved. Besides, innocent sufferings enable a good to reach the highest degrees of grace and virtue here, which will produce for them a correspondingly high degree of endless glory in the kingdom of heaven. Father Remler, 1935. Sobering words. We closed yesterday by noting that storm clouds are gathering on the horizon. We need to take that as a prompting from God to have our priorities in order. Our first priority has to be holiness. If we haven't got serious about that yet, we should get serious about it. Remember we talked about the fact that whining, complaining, feeling sorry for ourselves isn't going to change anything. But holiness can change everything. So we need to work on becoming holy. So obvious question is, what precisely does that mean? I'm going to read from a work by Father Trevino from years ago. Rules from the Spiritual Life. For practical purposes, the notion of holiness can be considerably simplified. Concretely and practically, I can ask, what ought I to do in a practical way to arrive at holiness? Not only will the canonical or ecclesiastical notion of holiness help us answer the question, in other words, what does the church teach, but the procedure followed by the church in the process of the beatification and canonization of saints will shed full light on it. Before placing a soul on the altar for veneration by the faithful, the church opens a most difficult and delicate process, the process of beatification. The chief and most laborious part of this process consists in proving that the four moral virtues and three theological virtues have been exercised to a heroic degree. What do we mean by the four moral virtues and the three theological virtues? The three theological virtues have God as their end. That's faith, hope, and charity. The moral virtues help us live a good life. And so the moral virtues, what we have is prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. So faith, hope, charity, prudence, justice, uh, fortitude, and temperance. That's what they mean there. So the chief and most laborious part of beatification consists in proving that the four moral virtues and three theological virtues have been exercised to a heroic degree. When this has been established, a person acquires the title venerable. So when they're called a venerable, that means that they've practiced the virtues in a heroic degree. How is this determined? By demonstrating that the person in question has fulfilled his or her everyday tasks with perfection and constancy, in this way conforming fully with divine will. We are living a life of heroic virtue when we're doing our everyday tasks with perfection and constancy, whatever our state in life is. God calls all of us to sanctity. We have different states in life. We have to do our duty in our state in life. That is how we become holy. Perfect conformity of the human will with the divine will, it is in this that holiness consists. Let me read that again. Perfect conformity of the human will with the divine will, it is in this that holiness consists. Everybody has this book. If you don't, we'll have more of them for tomorrow. 
It's uniformity with God's will. The reason we want everybody to have this book and read it and reread it is if you do what's in this book, you will certainly become a saint. And to the degree you do it, you become a great saint. Uniformity with God's will. Written by St. Alphonsus. Fantastic little book. 30 pages of what it means to have conformity of your will with the divine will. Here we go with a declaration from Pope Benedict XV. In the decree concerning the heroic virtues of Venerable Antonio Cianelli in 1920, this doctrine was expounded with precision. Sanctity was declared to consist properly in the complete conformity of the human will with divine will. This conformity was said to be manifested in the constant and exact fulfillment of the duties proper to one state. I'll read that again. Sanctity, that is to say holiness, was declared to consist properly in the complete conformity of the human will with the divine will. This conformity was said to be manifested in the constant and exact fulfillment of the duties proper to one's state. Such a manner of living persevered in unswervingly over a long period of time is beyond the power of human nature left to itself. We're damaged goods. Left to himself, man is a plaything of the ups and downs of life, especially because of the inconstancy of his passions. The exact and faithful fulfillment of duty supposes the exclusion of all deliberate imperfection. Otherwise, there would be lack in the generosity which heroic virtue requires. So holiness consists in the conformity, complete conformity to human will with the divine will, and it's manifested when we see someone constantly exacting, fulfilling their duties in their state of life. That's holiness. Read the booklet, and then reread the booklet. And then when you don't know what else to do, read the booklet again. Okay. That being said, we noted some things in this, uh, in the, the pitchforks full of statistics I was throwing at you yesterday that the faith in larger circles of the church is not being passed on to the next generation. So we'll start by spending a few minutes to talk about pagan-proofing our children, and not just pagan-proofing them, but keeping them from falling away, not just to paganism, but to anything. It's a huge topic, but we need to consider three points that for some reason often seem to escape even the most pious Catholics. First point. Absolute importance of the liturgy. Now, we spoke of this very briefly in the last conference, but we need to make a few more points. Father Reginald Garrigou Lagrange, he's the last great Thomistic theologian. He died in 1964. Parenthetically, it's a strange time. Since St. Thomas, this is the first time that we haven't had a great theologian. There are no great Thomistic theologians since Garrigou died. There are Thomistic theologians, but it's a very, very extraordinary time. Anyway, Father Reginald Garrigou Lagrange, the last great Thomistic theologian, describes, he's writing to priests, how the reverence, adoration, and recollection visible when a mass is said by a saint, when you have a priest that's a saint, how that reverence, adoration, and recollection visible in that mass affects the faithful. Quote, The Mass of the Saints is, so to say, the prelude or beginning of that unending worship in heaven, which already finds its expression in the words at the end of the preface, Holy, 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 the Sanctus. 
Think of the influence of such masses on the faithful. There they learn to recognize the dignity of our priesthood, which is a continuation of Christ's priesthood. They gradually come to look on Christ, not merely as a figure of history who once walked the streets of Palestine, but as the God-man who lives on still to make intercessions on our behalf. They begin to realize that they themselves are living members of Christ's mystical body. They give God heartfelt thanks for all the benefits they have received since the day of their baptism, and they earnestly desire a fervent and fruitful communion. They appreciate better the infinite value of the Mass. They find it easier to understand how one Mass can provide as much light and life for a thousand souls as for one, provided that they are well disposed. In this, the Mass resembles the sun, which radiates its light and warmth to any number of people in the open. The Mass is, in in its essentials, the continuation of the sacrifice of the cross, which can be as profitable for all men as it was for a repentant thief, since Christ died for the whole world. Every Mass has an infinite value because of the principal offerer and the victim offered. Repeat that. Every Mass has an infinite value because of the principal offer and the victim offered. But the faithful should be able to grasp this limitless value of the Mass from the way it is celebrated. Every Mass has an infinite value because of the principal offer and the victim offered. But the faithful should be able to grasp this limited value of the Mass from the way it is celebrated. Close quote. The faithful should be able to grasp the limitless value of the Mass from the way in which it is celebrated. Some years ago, a very well-educated and thoughtful non-Catholic friend of mine attended a fairly typical Mass back in Montana. Now, I love home, but going to a typical Mass back home is experienced something like something out of divine comedy. I'm not talking about Paradiso here. Bad music, like Here I Am, Lord. You ever notice that the refrain has exactly the same tune as the theme from the Brady Bunch? It's just played a little bit slower. It has goofy words. I'm totally serious. I don't mean to distract you, but this is the kind of contempt they have for liturgy that they have music like that. They pile candles up all on one side of the altar till it looks like it's going to tip over. There's banners everywhere that look they were made in some cheesy junior high art class. They change the readings, God's holy word, whenever something might hurt someone's feelings. They have hordes and hordes of girl altar boys swarming all over the place, etc., etc., etc. And it's noisy. The people no longer know how to dress or deport themselves. They're chewing gum. It's an experience, that's for sure. Anyhow, they just don't have a clue. Anyhow, so my friend goes to Mass. He's a non-Catholic. Afterwards, speaking of his experience, he told me, I don't believe what you believe. But if I did, I sure wouldn't act the way the people do in there. I'd be flat on my face. He couldn't believe that the Catholics at that Mass actually believed what I told them we believed, 
about the real presence of our Lord, the most blessed sacrament author. He couldn't believe it. Actions speak louder than words. And he saw exactly what people think about our Lord's presence, the most blessed sacrament author, and what the priests think. He couldn't believe that they believed our Lord was really pleasant. He just plain flat couldn't believe they believed. Actions speak louder than words. The divine liturgy is the official public worship offered to God by mankind. And as such, it has to be absolutely reverent and taken seriously. Actions speak louder than words. The worship of God must be absolutely reverent and taken seriously. The worship of God must be absolutely reverent and taken seriously. If not, then there's a very, very clear message. Either A, these people are not serious about God because God has to be taken seriously by definition, or B, the God they purport to be worshiping does not have to be taken seriously. Either they aren't serious about God, or else this God doesn't have to be taken seriously. There are no other choices. That's it. Either they're not serious about God, or this God doesn't have to be taken seriously. What's the point? Because actions speak loud in words, irreverence in the liturgy has a message. Irreverence has a message all its own, and it should come as absolutely no surprise when young people are raised in these kind of parishes. They may have never missed Mass once in their entire lives growing up. Never, every Sunday, every Holy Day, they're going with their family. It should come as no surprise. Well, once those young people leave home, they leave the faith. It's no surprise. Actions speak loud in words. See, there's a very important principle. Grace perfects nature. What that means is, naturally speaking, if the message is completely warped, then we're asking for a miracle of grace to overcome that. You can't say one thing with what, by what you're doing naturally and say, well, but this means something else supernaturally. If irreverence is the message, then irreverence is the message. Parents must take the liturgy seriously. And if it's at all possible, make the sacrifices to get to reverent mass. If it's not possible, for example, if they're ranching out in the middle of Montana, then they need to spend that drive back home after mass, explain to the children what went wrong and why it went wrong, and praying for God to have mercy on everyone in that little parish or mission and praying that God will correct the situation. Why is discussion like this after Mass so necessary? Remember, there's only two possible messages that can be taken away from irreverent liturgy. Either A, these people aren't serious about God because God has to be taken seriously by definition, or B, the God they're purporting to be worshiping isn't meant to be taken seriously. Either they aren't serious about God or this God isn't to be taken seriously. The discussion with children is necessary about what went wrong and why it went wrong because the parents have a serious obligation before God, an obligation that no priest, no bishop, not even the Holy Father himself can excuse them from. No power on earth can excuse these parents from the obligation to make sure that the parent, these people are not serious about God precisely so that the children don't slide into the disastrous notion that the God they purport to be worshiping doesn't have to be taken seriously. Either they aren't serious about God or this 
God isn't to be taken seriously. And discussion will give those children the right terms of reference. It's an obligation to make sure the children understand these people don't get it. By these people, we mean the ones with the collars on. That's what we mean. Let's be clear. And they don't get it. We've got to make sure the children understand that. There's a lot more that could be said here, but we need to move on. I'll calm down. In order to introduce the next two points, we'll start with a little thought experiment. Suppose you came home, find some stranger sitting there talking to your kids, cussing, swearing, taking the Lord's name in vain, making fun of God and our holy religion, joking around, telling lies, telling your kids trashy stories, just generally carrying on. What would you do? What would you do? Would you sit there quietly, wring your hands, hope he quit talking like that? You ask him to be quiet. Let him stay. Would you open your front door and throw the bum out? And then try to assess the damage to your children. What would you do? It's obvious. You throw the bum out, and on the way out, it might not be such a bad idea to run his head in the door jam a couple times on the way out, just to make sure he understands clearly how seriously you take the violation of the sanctity of your home and the innocence of your children. I'm serious. I know I'm a priest. I'm serious when I say that. When our Lord drove the money changers out of the temple, he didn't ask him, pretty please, will you go? He was throwing tables over and beating them with whip of cords, and he was a carpenter that didn't work with power tools. He was a man's man. He was clobbering them. They were going to get out of there or he was going to let them have it. Obviously, unless you're planning on raising a bunch of heathens, the important thing to do is throw the bum out. And the sooner the better, right? Right. How many times have you come home, find your kids watching a bad program on TV? Listen to bad popular music. Do you have any acceptable DVDs, videos, cable channels, magazines, books, or music in your home? I'll let that finish itself. In the last conference... We read excerpts from an interview from a, with a Catholic girl that had a singular grace. When she's about the time of her first communion, she had this profound experience of God. And then we saw when she was 16, quote, In a year I went from being a nice Catholic girl who obeyed all the rules to being a more punk-like, politically radical witch, close quote. Now another part to that interview... She actually describes her trajectory from being a nice Catholic girl to becoming a pagan priestess. We'll just hit a few highlights. Quote, the year she went was 1981, by the way. Quote, an early radicalizing influence on me was you too. Rock and roll group. 
I was heavenly influenced by the music of the hippies. Close quote. Ultimately, I'll just sum it up. It leads to more radical music. She gets into punk and ska. At the same time, she also starts reading a certain author whose writings fall especially in the surrealistic or magical fantasy fiction category. And from that, she landed into witchcraft. Bad music, bad books, bad religion. St. Alphonsus says that one bad book can destroy an entire convent of nuns. One bad book can destroy an entire convent of nuns. Well, a bad book can do it. So can bad TV, bad videos, bad DVDs, bad magazines, and not just a convent of nuns, a household of kids. The Pied Piper might be a fairy tale, but it has an important moral lesson. Music can lure children away from their parents. Now, because of time, we're not going to develop this argument in great detail, though it's very important, and that's the second point. It's the absolute importance of music. We need music in our lives. We need music in our lives. But we don't need most of this sewage that passes for modern popular music. We need to get it out of our lives. But it's very important to realize that if we remove something from our lives like that, we have to replace it with something better. So we need music. We need good music. That doesn't necessarily mean, it's the Feast of St. Gregory, I know, but that we just sit around and listen to chant all day, okay? But it doesn't mean just religious or classical music, although those are both important. We need music in our lives, good music, both to listen to and even more importantly, to sing. By good music, we don't mean to limit ourselves, as I said, to religious or classical music. Those are important. Things like good folk music that human beings can sing. I mean, I just, I just this is just, a, I got tons more I could say, but I just pulled some out of my head. Shenandoah, Sweet Betsy from Pike, I Wonder as I Want Her, uh, Alouetta, Irish folk music. My home's in Montana. Of course, that's a great one in the Strawberry Roan. No, I'm just, but the point is, we need to fill our homes and surround our children and ourselves with good music as a preventative measure. If we don't fill their souls and lives with music, the enemy will. If we don't fill their souls and lives with music, the enemy will. Who are these people that are singing songs to our children? What are their values? What are their songs all about? Who are these people? Last thought, well, no... Let me make a couple other points. This is actually a pastoral problem. Believe it or not, it's easier, this is not an exaggeration, priests can tell you this, it's easier to get a cohabitating couple to break up than it is to get either one of them to give up their bad music. It is easier for the, to get them to break up and move out of a house than for either of them to get rid of their bad music. It's unbelievable the power and the grasp that this has on people. It's unbelievable. A guy will give up his girlfriend before he'll give up his trashy music. I'm serious. 
Last thought on this before we move on. I've been living right next to a public park for almost seven years. In good weather, there's people walking there all hours of the day and even most of the hours of the night. From the, my window in the office faces uh, the park in my bedroom, I can hear their conversations. That's how close they are when they're walking and all that. In almost seven years, I have yet to hear anyone sing anything. In seven years. I wouldn't believe this if I hadn't experienced it myself personally. It's unbelievable. No one sings. I know I'm a hick, but back home, you will hear guys with terrible voices singing at the rear end of cows as they're moving them, singing to the thin air, whatever. But in the city, it seems like no one sings at all when they're out and about. No one sings. What's going on? It's as if music is something that happens to them not something that they do. That's my conclusion from it. It's bad. It's very bad. It's very bad. The Benedictines at Clear Creek, how do they keep that rule and live that mortified life? It's because of the chant. They stop chanting, they can't keep the rule. If you go to a Benedictine monastery and they don't have a big chant, they're not keeping the rule. Guaranteed. Anywhere in the world, anytime. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. That's how it works. It gives you this strength. I was talking to a physician just the other day. He thinks there's significantly higher levels of mental illness in our day and age precisely because people don't sing and get those emotions out in an ordered fashion. And so these stresses and strains and burdens of life, which haven't been released in ordered fashion, end up disordering these poor folks. It sounds plausible to me. The Benedictines do it. We do it in the seminary. I know, you know, our seminary isn't like Clear Creek, but I know seven years of that, most guys wouldn't be able to take it if we didn't have the chant. The chant makes it doable. Not just because of the prayer. Obviously, I'm not discounting that. But it makes it doable. We need to sing. We need to have music in our homes, good music, and we need to sing. It's just not human to not sing. And if we're not passing the music on to our kids, they are. And I don't think I need to sit up here and explain what their music is about. Okay, that's the second point. We don't want the Pied Pipers of our culture of death to lead our kids away. We need to fill our homes and surround our children with good music as a preventative measure. We need to sing. It's very important. Third point, absolute importance of stories. Are you serious, Father? I'm as serious as a heart attack. What stories are filling our children's imagination? What are the stories that they think about? Brooks Alexander has some insights. Remember Brooks Alexander? I was quoting him yesterday. He's a convert from the 60s counterculture whose insights on neo-paganism I was following yesterday. He has some important insights regarding stories. Quote, Graham Harvey of King Alfred's College in the United Kingdom studied how imaginative literature is used in neo-paganism. Noting that while no single text is read by all pagans, the construction and narration of pagan identity commonly entails reading, especially fantasy literature. His landmark article titled, Fantasy in the Study of Religion, reached the following notable conclusions. Paganism is a spirituality centered on celebration of and engagement with nature. 
like many, perhaps most religions, its experience is more adequately expressed in imaginative stories than in dogmatic assertions. Theatrical rituals and creative stories are closer to its heart than plain descriptions or narratives purporting to say what witches do. Thus, paganism is better understood and certainly better taught using these forms. Brooks Alexander continues, Neo-pagans clearly comprehend this concept. The point is this. Storytelling preaches the message more effectively than simple preaching does. People get the point of a story more directly, and they get it in a more personal way because a story moves them at the level of their fears and desires. This suggests another way of looking at the progress and presence of neo-paganism in our culture, to see it not as the spread of an intellectual ideology, but as the spread of an existential infection. The carriers of that infection have been stories told by others to our children while we were busy. The carriers of that infection have been stories told by others to our children while we were busy. From that angle, the competition between neo-paganism and Christianity is really a contest between competing stories about the origin and destiny of mankind. Why describe it this way? Because the truth is that Christianity, like paganism, is also better understood and better taught using dramatic narratives. For the ultimate example of that, look no farther than the Gospels themselves. For separate tellings of the same dramatic tale, a tale of temptation and trial, of suffering and sacrifice, of a tragedy that turns into a triumph. That is how the Christian faith has always been conveyed. Indeed, it is how God has always chosen to reveal himself, both in history and in scripture. The Bible itself is a story from beginning to end. Close quote, Brooks Alexander. The competition between neo-paganism and Christianity is really a contest between competing stories about the origin and the destiny of mankind. The Bible itself is a story from beginning to end, but we've allowed non-believers to tell the stories to our children while we were busy. Unfortunately, those non-believers aren't simply neo-pagans. Keep in mind that priests are the official storytellers appointed by God to tell his stories, but nowadays, for the most part, the priests don't actually believe the stories. Let's consider that for a moment. What does it mean when we say the storytellers don't believe the stories? If every single speck of our holy religion is not true, then why bother? If it's not all true, why bother? If it's not all true, then our claims are essentially no different than anyone else, including the neo-pagans. If the claims of our holy religion are not true, and each and every one, one of them true, why bother? This is not a convenient religion. We don't get to do whatever we feel like. We have to think differently, talk differently, dress differently, act differently than everyone around us. And as a reward for that, we get to be the butt 
of all the sophisticated people's jokes. And then to add to the whole inconvenience, since we're traditionalists, even though we're not supposed to notice this, there's a caste system firmly in place inside the church, and we're the untouchables. Virtually everywhere you go inside the church, we're consigned to the back of the bus, treated with fear and contempt, and this even by many very good Catholics. Personally, I'm thankful for that part because it keeps us humble, and I'm not joking. But it's not convenient. It's also not going to change. This isn't a convenient religion. The only reason to be Catholic is because it's true. It's true. We have a bunch of super sophisticated people that have been educated right out of their common sense. They will start telling you any number of screwball things about what you can believe in the Bible and what's myth and or primitive men trying to describe something they can't understand back in the day. Blah, 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 blah. And it's just this kind of nonsense that makes young people who haven't been educated right out of their common sense just pack up their bags and walk away. Because if it isn't all true, then it's just another book in the genre of fantasy literature. If the first 11 chapters of Genesis aren't true, then why bother with John 6? It's the same author. If he doesn't remember how he created the world, how will we know if the Blessed Sacrament's true? That's not obvious. It's one book. I don't care how many degrees somebody has. Somebody explain to me this. God forgot something? He got it wrong? Then who are we talking about? It's blasphemy. It's God's holy word. We don't need to have 16 doctorates to discover the story of the creation of Adam and Eve is a story about the creation of Adam and Eve. And not a fairy tale for Harvard professors about taking one ingredient, hydrogen, and then adding time and poof, you get a universe out of it. Nobody thinks like this except for all these people that quit thinking. You couldn't convince anybody normal to think like this. You have to be educated out of your common sense. I'm not being facetious right now. I'm not being facetious right now. Do you know, if you talk to people, we've, we've got a stage musician, actually, that's one of our priests. I don't want to tell you which one, but that's what he used to do for a living. If you talk to guys that are magicians... You know who the hardest people to trick are? It's the kids. It's all like, you know who the easiest ones are to trick? The PhDs. I'm not joking. That's reality. Okay, there's nothing wrong with a PhD, but we can't fall in love with our great mind, huh? Because God knows more than us. There's nothing wrong. The church developed these things. I am not making fun of education. I am making fun of a certain attitude of pride and contempt. Okay, I am making fun of that, but not education. We can't fall into this snare. The battle, for example, over the teaching of evolution is a religious battle, period. Close the book. Okay, we know that one way of understanding the competition between neo-paganism and Christianity is to consider it as a contest between competing stories about the origin and destiny of mankind. But we've allowed non-believers, including far, far too many priests, to tell the stories to our children when we're busy. The Bible itself is a story from beginning to end. What's the answer? We need to make sure we're passing on the stories to our children, starting with, but not limiting yourself to, Scripture, 
the lives of the saints and the good ones. Not this modern nonsense where they cut out all the miracles. Get rid of that trash. Throw it away. Put it in your wood stove. The Bible, the lives of the saints, history of the church. Bible, lives of the saints, history of the church. We got the best stories. They're awesome. St. Patrick fighting the Druids. It's just like the modern neo-pagans. He takes them on and converts the whole country. It's amazing, the stories. St. Anthony, by locating, preaching to the fish. It's amazing. Yeah, he would preach the fish and they came up out of the water. See, he's so conformed to Christ that his commands, that, that nature is hearing God speaking to him. So the fish come up because the heretics won't le- listen to him. So he goes out there and starts preaching. The fish aren't understanding him. That's not the point of what he's doing. He's up there preaching. You're not going to listen to me? I'm going to talk to stupid fish. Boom! And they're all poking up and looking at him. And pretty soon all the heretics are going, wait a minute. They go over to see this guy. Maybe we better listen to this guy. And he converts him. Preaching to the fish. Okay, lots of witnesses to that. A Saint Rita. You know, her sons wanted to get in this vendetta. They're going to kill people. What does she do? She prays for the death of her own children. It's amazing. Or the little flower. How kind she was. She singles out. You know, here she's living this hidden life. She singles out the one person that really, really drives the craziest. And that's who she just lavishes all her love and attention on. To the point where that one sister says, why am I your favorite? And she was absolutely her not favorite. I mean, they're the best story. St. Anne, Charlemagne, finding St. Anne's uh, relics. It's fantastic stuff. We got the best stories. We got the best stories. We need to pass them on. Read the Bible out loud, chapter by chapter, to your children, grandchildren, your godchildren. When we get to the end, open it up at the beginning and start over again. It's God's love letters to us. It's God's love letters to us. It's his story with what the point of history is. If you do this, it's going to have a huge effect on your children. I guarantee. It's absolutely Guaranteed. We're never too old for this. Do you know what you do in a traditional monastery or convent at lunch and supper? Or like in a traditional seminary like the one I'm in? You know what's going on then? You're sitting there eating quietly and they're reading to you. And it's awesome. They're reading these stories. And a lot of times you can't wait to the next day to hear what's going to happen next. Even if you know the story. You know how that is when you're little and your, your mom or your dad would read the story. You know what the next page was, but you couldn't wait to what's happening next. On a lot of these saints, you know what's going to happen next, but you can't wait to hear it anyway because it's so cool to have people read it to you. You're never too old for that. Even if the kids are gone, you can read to each other. I mean, if you know how to read, take advantage of it. Think all the Catholics that couldn't read, that would have loved to read and had a book and been able to read or have somebody read to them. And we can do it. And what are we doing with it? Reading trash, huh? We need to fill our home's imaginations with good stories, not by stories written by members of the culture of death. St. Hugh of Lincoln said, quote, Catholic books are our arms in times of war, close quote. Catholic books are our arms in times of war. We're at war. And the reasons we're losing the culture wars, we've forgotten the absolute importance of the divine liturgy. We've forgotten the absolute importance of good music. We've forgotten the absolute importance of reading good stories out loud, especially God's holy word, lives of the saints, and history of the church. And instead, we've allowed the enemies to sing their songs to our children. And tell their stories to our children. It's small wonder that we're losing. Okay. So where are we? We've seen what holiness is. We've taken a quick look at the absolute importance of liturgy, absolute importance of good music, absolute importance of reading good stories out loud. Now we're going to spend the rest of this conference quickly considering obstacles to our growth in holiness. We're going to consider five obstacles to our growth in holiness Briefly.
five obstacles are mortal sin, venial sin, voluntary imperfections, the relics of sin, and devils. Mortal sin, venial sin, voluntary imperfections, relics of sin, and devils. Remember, mortal sin is something that's uh, seriously wrong. We know it was seriously wrong and we made a full consent of the will to it, whether we mentally or, or actually, you know, performed it in external order. I'm going to read from Father Royal Marin, great Dominican, uh, writing on this, Spanish Dominican. Mortal sin. He wants, uh, th- this is what we should meditate on if we're, if we're struggling with it, habitual mortal sin. First point, mortal sin must be a most serious evil if God punishes it so terribly. Realizing that God is infinitely just and he cannot punish anyone more than he deserves and that he is at the same time infinitely merciful and therefore always punishes the guilty less than they deserve, we know certainly that as a result of mortal sin, A, the rebellious angels were changed into horrible demons for all eternity. One sin turned the angel into a devil. One mortal sin. B, our first parents were driven out of paradise and all humanity was subjected to every man of sick, manner of sickness, desolation, and death. One sin. Adam's sin. C, God will maintain for all eternity the fire of hell as a punishment for those guilty ones who die in mortal sin. That's de fide of the faith. All eternity. It never ends. D. Christ, the dearly beloved Son of God, when he wished to satisfy for culpable man, had to suffer the terrible torments of the passion and experience in himself as our representative the indignation of divine justice, even to the point of exclaiming, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Second point. Because of the injury against God's infinite majesty, mortal sin possesses a malice, which is in a certain sense infinite. Third point. Mortal sin instantly produces the following disastrous effects in the soul. Remember yesterday, or the first conference, we talked about supernatural life. This life that gives us the ability to go to heaven and live there if we get there. Huh? And mortal sin is supernatural suicide. So now we're going to talk about what happens when we drive that supernatural life out of our soul. Huh? A. The loss of sanctifying grace. That's that supernatural life. It's gone. The loss of infused virtues, faith, or well, not necessarily faith or hope, they're there, but charity for sure. If you commit a, sin, a mortal sin against faith or hope, those leave. Mortal sin against faith, everything's gone. A mortal sin against hope, a hope is gone, but faith remains. Mortal sin, most other mortal sins just take out charity and all, all the infused virtues and the gifts of the Holy Ghost. B. The loss of the indwelling of the Trinity in the soul. So we go from being a temple of God. He's gone. He's out of there. We've invited God to leave in a violent fashion. Get out. That's what a mortal sin is. I don't want you in my life. C, the loss of all merits acquired in one's past life. Gone. D, 
an ugly stain on the soul, which leaves the soul dark and horrible. E. Slavery to Satan. An increase in evil inclinations. So part of the punishment is it's easier to sin after we've done that. That's how people get into bondage with these habitual sins, like IV drug users that keep falling into this stuff and don't do violence against themselves until they're just turned in on themselves. And the only thing they're thinking about is where they're going to get that next fix. It's like hell on earth. They're already living in that. And some of the other perversions where they're just so locked into their sin. That's what they live for their sin. So slavery to Satan, increase of evil inclinations, and remorse of conscience. That worm that never dies. F, the guilt of eternal punishment. All that. Mortal sin is therefore the death of the soul to the life of grace. If these ideas are well considered... And if the soul humbly implores the help of God in prayer, it will gradually acquire a profound horror of mortal sin and eventually resolve to break with sin and even to die rather than to commit a mortal sin. But this decision of the will is not enough. The soul is still very weak and somebody that's been a habitual sinner. The soul is still very weak and must be fortified by using the necessary means for acquiring the energy which it lacks. It must be advised to avoid all occasions of sin with the greatest care, to frequent the sacraments, to make a daily examination of conscience in order to prevent unexpected temptations, to have a tender devotion to Our Lady, to be always profitably occupied in this combat sloth, the mother of all graces. That's what we mean, uh, uh, the devil makes work for idle hands. If somebody isn't busy... They're going to get in trouble, especially if they had troubles before. Stay busy. Daily to ask God the efficacious grace to avoid offending him. So that's mortal sin. It's an absolute obstacle to spiritual life. There is no spiritual life with mortal sin. None. So you have to conquer that by the grace of God and God's wills that we do. And then we're living in the state of grace. Okay. Now remember, before we go into this, the idea in the spiritual life, you think of a spiral staircase where every year as you come over Easter, for example, you're another level up as this each year goes by. The idea is to be moving up in the life of grace till you move from the first level. Remember, the first level is the purgative way, also called the level of beginners. When we're in the state of grace, when we're baptized, except for certain extraordinary events that God does to some saints and whatnot, we are in the purgative way or beginners. This means we have to struggle to grow in virtue. We have to struggle to conquer our vices and to grow in virtue. We go to confession. We go to communion. We do mortifications. We have a good land. We do our spiritual reading. We work on a mental prayer. And every year we can be confident as we're working on we'll be going up. We'll be going up because there's no in this spiritual life. You're either going up or you're going down. There's no hovering. You can't just go around in a holding pattern. Nope. We're either going up or we're going down. And that's what we want to do is going up. Now, the angle, the, in other words, how fast we make progress depends on God and on us. On God, because for some people it makes it very quick. And on us, because we have to cooperate with his grace. Okay, we'll get to that. But. The idea is, as we're working in the purgative way, we want to get up, and we'll get to that in venial sin, to get the level of zeal. And then our prayer will start to change. 
our prayer and our rosary, our mental prayer, when we're trying to meditate, it starts to change. And the sign it starts to change is it becomes less and less discursive. God starts taking over. What's discursive mean? Just a big word that means you go point to point to point. But as God starts taking over the prayer life, all of a sudden he'll hold somebody in an idea. This isn't Zen Buddhism, erase your imagination stuff. This is God. He's starting to reward somebody. They've struggled hard to get over all their difficulties. And now he st- says, all right, they've got to move to the next level. And he, there's no way for us to do it. So he reaches in and starts pulling people up. It is his will that every Catholic reach contemplation, higher level of prayer. That is normal, but it's extremely rare because people won't do the work. Get rid of the mortal sin and then the venial sin. We're going to go through the work right now. We'll talk. These are the, the obstacles that might hold us back, okay? Venial sin. After mortal sin, there's nothing that we should avoid more carefully than venial sin. Although it is much less serious than mortal sin. Obviously, Venial sin, when we die with, if with venial sins in our soul, we can be saved. As long as we're in state of grace, we die with venial souls, sins in our soul, we're saved. We may spend a good long time in purgatory, but we're safe. We made it. It doesn't completely deflect us from God. Okay. So, although it is much less serious than mortal sin, it is nevertheless a moral evil. And moral evil is the greatest of all evils. Before this type of evil, all others of the physical order fade away. As if they were nothing. Neither sickness nor death itself can be compared to the evil of sin. Neither sickness nor death itself can be compared to the evil of sin. Cardinal Newman has a wonderful meditation on this. Just roughly paraphrased. He imagines the whole world and all of a sudden it starts drying out with no water on the whole planet. All the plants are dying of the drought. All the animals you know, panting, the wild animals, the birds, the fish are laying there flopping, the people, everything on earth dies a slow and agonizing death of thirst. That event is less serious than the smallest venial sin. Venial sin is an insult to the good God. Neither sickness nor death itself can be compared to the evil of sin. It's necessary to have a horror of it and to put into practice the means necessary to avoid it. I want to make a distinction. We'll come back to it in a minute. There's two kinds of venial sin, deliberate venial sins. It's not seriously wrong. But you had full reflection, or sufficient reflection, full consent of the will. It's cold-blooded. Yeah, I know it's wrong, but it's only a white lie. Yeah, I know I should be nicer, but I'm be a little snarly towards him or her. What is this like when we're talking about God? Well, to put it in human terms, although we're talking about God, what would it, what kind of a relationship would it be between a husband and wife where they go out of their way to just insult each other at the table, knowing it would hurt each other's feelings, but not to the point where it would be morally sinful, not using really bad words, but using things they knew hurt and they know would really, oh, that's love, isn't it? This is what venial sin is to God, but he's God. Deliberate venial sin, huh? Then there's semi-deliberate. The council trend is clear. Without a special grace, like Our Lady had, without a special grace, we can't avoid 
semi-deliberate venial sins. These are sins where we didn't have full reflection or sufficient, uh, you know, what happened, like it caught us by surprise. It's a sin out of weakness. Somebody asks a real embarrassing question, we blurt out a lie. We kind of think it's a lie, but we do it real quick. And I go, wow, I wouldn't do that normally, you know, and you, you feel terrible. Or, or you're really tired and you had a really rough day and then somebody just hits you in the wrong way. And, and, and you make a real snarly remark back or just bark at him or something like that, huh? Those are semi-deliberates where it caught you off guard on weakness. Not the same. We can't avoid those. We're going to go into that right now, but I'm going to read you something from St. Teresa of Avila, the great doctor of the church, speaking of venial sin. Remember, the Carmelite doctors are the ones we rely on. They, they're authoritative in the, in the mystical, in the interior life, mystical and ascetic life. So big St. Teresa, St. Teresa of Avila, St. John of the Cross. And the little flower. Okay. St. Teresa Avila speaking of venial sin. From any sin, however small, committed with full knowledge, may God deliver us. Especially since we are sinning against so great a sovereign and realize that he is watching us. That seems to me to be a sin of malice aforethought. It is as though one were to say, Lord, although this displeases thee, I shall do it. I know that thou seest it, and I know that thou wouldst not have me do it. But although I understand this, I would rather follow my own whim and desire than thy will. If we commit a sin in this way, however slight, it seems to me that our offense is not small, but very, very great. That's St. Teresa of Avila. Remember. We make a distinction between the deliberate venial sins that she's speaking of there and the semi-deliberate ones that proceed from weakness, surprise, lack of attention, deliberation. Completely different than a cold-blooded venial sin in that sense. So like a semi-deliberate, if you want a, a vision, we're trying, to cl- we're trying to climb the mountain towards God and we're tripping, we're falling down. But we haven't turned away. A deliberate venial sin, we're not turning around like a, like a mortal sin and just jumping off the mountain backwards. You know, we're still going, but we've decided to turn off the trail this way or that, this way or that, just for mental image. Where a semi-deliberate, we fall on our face and we get back up. Okay? God knows how weak we are and he readily forgives the semi-deliberate venial sins. The only thing we can do about those is work to reduce them as much as possible and avoid discouragement. I'll read you something from St. Francis de Sales here in a minute. But one of the best ways to help you get over it is at the elevation of the precious blood, you can ask God to give you the grace to prefer death to committing a single deliberate venial sin. Once we understand that death is far less serious than a deliberate venial sin, why not ask him for that grace? So that we don't just have it intellectually, but we're doing something about it. We're really acting on it. He wants us to grow in holiness. When we get to this level, we're starting to get at the level of zeal then. And this is action of grace. So we're going up. We've asked him to bring us up, and we're getting closer and closer to the level where we will start going up. If we keep at that, we can be confident. We do the other things we'll talk about here. They will start going into contemplation. Huh? That he'll lift us up to the next level. They will start going, that will go from the purgative way into the illuminative way. From the level of beginners to the level of proficients. Because we've got up to, to by the great by His grace and by work, co- cooperating with it. Okay, we want to diminish their number as far as possible and avoid discouragement. Discouragement is an obstacle to, to perfection, and it always implies self-love. If you say, "I can't believe I did that," what is that? Pride? You just did do that. 
St. Philip Neri every morning used to say, Lord, better keep both hands on Philip today or he'll betray you worse than Judas. See, he knew what he could do. And we could do it too. If we do something, we get up and dust ourselves off and say, you better hang on, Lord, because who knows what I'm going to do next. What we should be surprised by isn't that we did what we just did. It's that we weren't worse than we were, huh? Because that should surprise us. It should surprise us that we're not worse than we were. You know, she never committed a mortal sin. But she talks in her writings about how the, the great mercy of God, that she realized her potential to do all those things, huh? It's the same thing. We can sit there and say, I'm capable of partner anything. If God doesn't hang on to me in the next 20 seconds, who knows what I'm going to Who knows what's going to go through my mind? Who knows what I'm going to say and so forth? The only reason we're not worse is because of the mercy of God. So we don't want to get discouraged. Here's St. Francis de Sales, doctor of the church. Although it is reasonable to feel discouragement and to be sorry for having committed any faults, this discouragement should not be sour, angry, acrimonious, or cleric. And this is the great defect of those who, seeing themselves angry, become impatient with their own impatience and become angry at their own anger. Believe me that just as the sweet and cordial reproaches of a father make more of an impression on a son than his rage and anger, so also if we reproach our heart when it commits some fault with sweet and peaceful reproaches, using more compassion than anger and arousing the heart to amend, we shall succeed in arousing repentance, which is much more performed and penetrating than that which could be aroused with resentment, anger, and anxiety. Therefore, when your heart falls, raise it sweetly, humbling yourself greatly in the presence of God by the recognition of your misery without being surprised at your fall. For what is so strange that sickness should be sick, that weakness should be weak, that misery should be wretched? Nevertheless, detest with all your heart the offense which you've committed against God and filled with courage and confidence in his mercy, begin again the practice of the virtue which you've abandoned. That's St. Francis of Sales. Father Royal Marin. If one acts in this way, reacting promptly against those faults of weakness with a profound repentance full of meekness, humility, and confidence in the mercy of God, they will leave scarcely any trace in the soul, and they will not constitute a serious obstacle on the path of our sanctification. But when venial sins are committed coldly with perfect deliberation and advertence, they constitute an insuperable obstacle to perfection. Deliberate venial sins make it impossible to proceed on the road to sanctity. These sins sadden the Holy Ghost, as St. Paul says in Ephesians 4.30, and they completely paralyze his sanctifying work in the soul. Deliberate venial sins cannot coexist with someone pursuing holiness. We have to root them out. Okay. We've talked about moral sin. We've talked about venial sin. We have to go through voluntary imperfections. Voluntary imperfections. St. John of the Cross will first explain what they are and what their effect is. And then he will talk a little bit about breaking free of them. Some habits of voluntary imperfections, which are never completely conquered, prevent not only the attainment of divine union but also progress in perfection. These habitual imperfections are, for example, a common custom of much speaking or some slight attachment which we never quite wish to conquer. 
such as that to a person, a garment, a book, a cell, a particular kind of food, tittle-tattle, fancies for tasting, knowing or hearing such certain things, and such like. A single one of these imperfections, if the soul has become attached and habituated to it, is of a great harm to growth and progress of virtue, in virtue, as though one were to fall daily into a great number of other imperfections and casual venial sins, which do not proceed from habitual indulgent in some harmful attachment. These are voluntary ones, so we've got a habit. You know, I am going to be attached to this. I don't want anybody to touch my bicycle. Don't touch it, you know, etc. This kind of thing, okay? As long as a soul has this, there's no possibility it will make progress in perfection, even though the imperfection be extremely slight. For it comes to the same thing whether a bird be held by a slender cord or by a stout one. Since even if it be slender, the bird will be well held as though it were stout. For as long as it breaks not, it not and flies not away. It is true that the slender one is easier to break. Still, easy though it be, the bird will not fly away if it be not broken. And thus the soul that has attachment to anything, however much virtue it possesses, will not attain to the liberty of divine union. This takes grace. Naturally speaking, we can't do this. We have to pray. This is his doctrine of nada, not a, you know, nada, nothing, nothing. St. John of the Cross points out the basic reason it's necessary to renounce absolutely all voluntary imperfections. They're not sins. We're not talking about imperfections that proceed from weakness or not paying attention. Voluntary imperfections, you know. I, I know I probably talk too much. I'm not saying anything sinful. Well, okay, then mortify that. I know I, I, I like this seasoning too much. Well, okay, then mortify that. There's nothing wrong with that seasoning. Just mortify. I don't want to have a voluntary attachment to it. Set it aside till I'm not attached to it, and then I can use it not be attached or, you know, use something. Do you see these are kind of, where, this is why it's so important for us to be serious about Lent and watching ourselves. Because we want to come to this self-knowledge so we can take out our little spiritual hatchets and chop these little spider webs that are holding us down. Because the same way there's a chain or a little piece of spider web to keep us from becoming holy, okay? Imperfection, Father Moyerman continues, is by its very nature a remiss act or the voluntary negation of a more intense act. Consequently, it is impossible to proceed in perfection if we don't renounce habitual, voluntary imperfections. Here's the key. This is the reason why in practice so many potential saints are frustrated and why there are so few true saints. There are many souls who live habitually in the grace of God, who never commit mortal sins and even exert every effort to avoid venial sins. Nevertheless, they are paralyzed in the spiritual life and they remain for many years in the same imperfections or even grow imperfections. How can we explain this phenomenon? The answer is they have not endeavored to root out their voluntary imperfections. They have not tried to bake that sender cord which keeps them tied to the earth and prevents them from rising in flight to the heights. What a trivial thing to hold us back. Some attachment to too much talking a particular garment, a book, some little bit of material thing. And yet it can stop us from becoming the saints God wants us to be. What, what pities, accents of pity and sadness, St. John of the Cross laments this situation. St. John of the Cross. It is sad to see certain souls in this plight. Like rich vessels, they are laden with wealth and good works and spiritual exercises and with the virtues and the favors that God grants them. And yet, 
because they have not the resolution to break with some whim or attachment or affection, which all come to the same thing. They never make progress or reach the port of perfection, though they would de- to do no more than make one good flight and thus snap that cord of desire right off. It is greatly to be lamented that when God has granted them strength to break other and stouter cords, namely affections for sins and vanities, so they've broken free by the grace of God from mortal sin. They've broken free from deliberate venial sin, and now it's a horsehair holding them back. The chains and the anchors and the bondage broken free. The ropes all chopped through, and it's a horsehair holding them from holiness. It is greatly relented when God has granted them strength to break other and stouter cords, namely affections for sin and vanities. They should fail to attain to such blessing because they have not shaken off some childish thing which God had bidden them to conquer for love of him, and which is nothing more than a thread or a hair. It's absolutely necessary to wage an unceasing battle against our voluntary imperfections if we wish to arrive at perfect union with God. And he wants you to. This is what he's calling you to do. This is not impossible. Yes, it takes effort. But the effort is trivial compared to the effort of of conquering mortal sin and trivial compared to the effort of conquering deliberate venial sin. Don't give up. Relics of sin. We've looked at mortal sin, venial sin, voluntary imperfections, relics of sin. Think of these. I preached on them not long ago, before Christmas. But think of these as unhealed wounds. They're like festering inside of a person from things that have happened, things they've committed or have been done to them. And yet there's a disorder there inside, these relics of sin that remain. Okay, uh, what this can mean, for example, suppose is, you know, in your memory, suppose you have painful memories about something that happened with someone you very much love, and uh, that painful memory is there, and it hasn't, it hasn't been totally ordered out, and we'll get to how to do that. The devil can see that memory is something he has access to. Memory has physical aspects. That's why neurosurgeons can touch parts of your brain. You can remember things. It's not, it's not, it, it, the imagination, the memory, these things are the material aspects of your mind. Remember the intellect and the will are purely spiritual, but these have material aspects. The devils and the angels have access to that. This is where the devils, they go zipping on by, ding, they put a little claw in there and, and stir it up and hurt you. Make you mad at somebody. Bring back this painful memory right when you least need it, etc., etc., etc. These things are an obstacle to our growth in holiness because they keep us, they can keep us from having this peace that Christ wants to give us. And we speak explicitly about that. If you look at the prayers the priests pray before communion, think of all the different things in the divine liturgy we're officially asking God to do when we receive communion. It's important to notice these things because it, this communion is no different for me than for you, you know. And the first, the first one is a prayer asking for his peace. The third one is a prayer asking to heal these kind of things. And he will. I've told the story. I'll mention it again. I think it's four years ago or so. Yeah, it's four years ago. I was talking to an exorcist. He's since retired, but he's a full-time exorcist at the time. And he told me the story. I've mentioned it to you, I think. Yeah, I did from the pulpit. There was a, he's dealing with a case of possession, and the person 
had to forgive their family. The devils are going, ha, 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 we're not going to leave. He hasn't forgiven them. Because he had to forgive the family before the person could be delivered. What did he have to forgive his family for? He grew up in a family of Satanists. He'd been ritualistically abused with all that entails, and I'm certainly not going to say since infancy, till he basically escaped home. You can't forgive that. Humanly speaking, it is impossible. He has all these relics of sin. Where are the demons hiding? In all those wounds. That's where they're hanging on to them. It's like spiritual Velcro, and that's where they're stuck. In order to deliver him, he had to forgive his parents. He delivered them within a year. I said, Father, how did you do that? Because as a priest, this is an interesting proposition, you know. How is it that someone can forgive their parents like that so that the exorcism will take effect? I said, it's easy. We can't do it. But what do you do is prayers along this line. Say, you're inviting our Lord in. Because our Lord, we've got to keep in mind, he comes to make all things new. Lord, I can't handle this, but you can. I'm inviting you to all those memories of all the things my parents did to me. All the tortures, everything I went through. All those memories, all those events, all the painful emotions associated with it. All the sins that have flowed out of that in my life. All the things I've done in reaction to All that stuff. I'm turning that over to you. See, he's confessed everything he's done, but these things are remaining, these memories and wounds. The sin has been forgiven, but these relics are there. And that's either purg- you either get it healed. If you die in the state of grace, that's purgatory time, huh? You can get them healed now. So he says, you come in. You take charge of that. I can't help it. You you do. And he's asking our Lord Jesus to come in and take charge of all those things. So literally inviting them in. Lord, I can't handle this, but you can. You come into all those memories, all those events, and you heal them. You make them new. Within a year, our Lord had. Because the Lord is a gentleman. He won't go where he's not invited. He invited him into that. He starts rearranging it, polishing up, and making it the way he wants. And reordering the person's interior life. Till it's pleasing to him. Doesn't mean the, the guy forgets. It means the pain associated with the memories is gone. It means the things that flow out of that. When he, if he remembers, it isn't going to cause a reaction or something. It's there. He can forgive him. He might not want to see him. That's logical enough. But he can pray for him now. And he's forgiven him. And he's not in bondage to all those things anymore. He's been freed. I've told people this before. It's been two weeks. Yeah, two weeks since someone came to me that had a healing. It happens regularly. Regularly. After the high mass, the main thing we're interested in is not physical healing, although we are interested in that when we're doing the blessing of the relic of true cross. This is the main thing as priests we want to heal. I don't, I'm not making light of anything else because we want everybody healed of whatever God wants to heal them. I don't say it. But this is more important because it, it directly impacts holiness and physical sufferings may or may not. Do you see what I mean? But this will. We can get it healed. We ask. Now here's another thing. You can add two other things to it. You ask, say those prayers, especially after you've gone to communion. Notice that prayer right before the priest receives communion. It's for that. And then, the prayer, right when I'm doing the, the second purification over there, look at those prayers in your missile sometime and look what the priest praying. I mean, I'm praying for it twice, right before communion and then right after communion. I'm asking for it. You can ask for whatever. I mean, the priests are doing it on purpose because God tells us to. But you can do that same thing too. And then you can make a deal. So you ask for him communion. You invite him in. That's why he's coming to communion. He doesn't need anything. 
He's God. He's got it all. We need him. And so he's coming to communion because he wants to help us. Well, ask him for help. That's why he comes to us in communion. I need help with these things. So we ask him for that. Maybe we have a bad attitude about something. Maybe somebody really hurt our feelings. Maybe there's something horrible in our child. Whatever it is, we ask him for help. So we do it in communion. We do it in prayer. And then you can make something. See, so you can use it during the rest of the day, too. You can come up with something. St. Ignatius talks about doing a motion like this. But you're going to look goofy walking around. But you can do things like anytime I set my hand on my chin or my, 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 uh, my chin on my hand like this, anytime I pull my ear, anytime I wipe my four. You know, some some sort of not obvious nervous habit, Lord. I mean to renew all those prayers that I made. Why? You can be on the phone, you know, going like this, looking real intelligent, talking to your boss, you know, rubbing your chin or whatever it is that makes you look really intelligent. And the whole time you're renewing that prayer because you can act. Our Lord understands that stuff. It's a language of love. I've said this many times. I've noticed many, many times, you know, when you're visiting married people, they will have a little conversation once. Well, something will happen where they're just looking at each other and there's a little communication going on. They know each other so good. They're in love. And so somebody says something to somebody else. It's none of the priest's business. I'm just observing it. But it's interesting. You can say, well, they love each other and they can just by a look or something, it means something. Well, all right. God loves us. We love him. So we can ask him that, that that's a, like secret code for, you know, heal all these things. And so you can be sitting there listening to your boss to you driving crazy crazy you can curl up your toes in your shoe it doesn't really matter you just pick something and so that you're consciously asking god every time i do that to renew those prayers so you might be busy about something else but doing this at the same time and you can get it done and he'll heal those relics whatever they are okay last one devils this one's pretty easy just preached on it recently okay Sacramentals, we just have to have sacramentals around and throw in your home to sacred immaculate heart, okay? Wear your brown scapular, use holy water, St. Benedict's medal. The prayers, precious blood wash over me, precious blood wash over me, protect me from the wickedness that snares the devil. You're having some kind of horrible movie go off in your head, you say precious blood wash over me, it goes away. Real feeling stressed out, precious blood wash It'll go away. You go, oh, I know who that was. It's diagnostic. Or you're really getting mad, let's say. You say, in the name of Jesus, I bind you, spirit of anger. If it goes away, you know what it was. In the name of Jesus, I bind you, spirit of lust. If it goes away, I know what it was. In the name of Jesus, I bind you, spirit of jealousy. If it goes away, you know what it was. We don't have to be uh, very concerned. Unless you're, unless you're going to a black mass, and nobody here better do that, or messing with nonsense, there's nothing to be scared of with these clowns. It's like the Wizards of Oz. You have this little twerp running lovers, and this great big, you know, I'm the mighty Oz with flames going off. This is how the devils are, okay? They want us to be really scared. They're twerps. You just take a fly sort of with one of these little prayers or some holy water. They're out of there. When I started the conference, that was to get rid of them. They have to leave. They're twerps. We don't have anything to worry about as long as we're not sinning. They're twerps. But we need to, to be conscious of this because these twerps are obnoxious. They're like little flies or gnats. And if we're not conscious of them, they'll cause problems because they'll touch that memory. Your kid has asked you this 15 times. And just about the time he asks you again, and they go, he just asked you 15 times. And that's when you go, boom. And uh, that's how the devil works. But if you get in the habit of, of saying, precious bud, wash over me. The kid will ask you the 15th time. And you go, please don't ask me the 15th time. The devil can't access you then, huh? It's, and we, so we can get in these kind of habits. Spiritual communions, precious blood wash over me and so forth. And, and uh, we can take him out of the mission. Okay, so my half of this mission is drawn to a close. Remember that God loves us. He wants us to become saints. Whatever particular circumstances... He has placed us. 
He wants us to become saints. As I argued in last conference, and uh, reading from Father Remler today indicates, barring divine intervention, I don't bar it, but barring divine intervention, the signs of our time mean one thing, that there's a persecution in the air. Don't know when, but it's on the way. Okay? Our response, our only response is intelligent, is to work on our holiness, especially uniformity with the will of God. If we find ourselves in a persecution and we're practicing uniformity with the will of God, we need to do all our purgatory time just like that. It's awesome, you know. We just have to look at it and just trust him. If he puts us in these circumstances, it's not to be scared. He loves us and he wouldn't have put us in a circumstance unless he knew you. I'm going to give you everything you need to be a saint right here in the particular time you're living, okay? So I want you to leave with this confidence, this profound confidence and trust in the sacred heart. God hasn't abandoned us. He hasn't left us. He's still here. And he hasn't gone anywhere. Okay? And he hasn't abandoned us. We have a confidence in the sacred heart, in the immaculate heart. They love us. And they want us to become saints. If you kneel down, I'll give you a blessing. Pax benedictia nutentis, patris et filii et spiritus sanctions, et maniat semper. Amen.